Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 this morning. We're in the book of Acts. If it's your first time among us, we are studying the book of Acts as we get ready for a very important moment in our calendar year. We're talking about the Leadership Summit coming February 3rd and 4th. Everyone is invited because God's called all of us in some way to be somebody's leader. And we're looking at these leadership principles in the book of Acts to be spirit-led leaders that God has called us to be. You know, I've said before, if you don't have a dream worth dying for, you don't have a dream worth living for. So what is your dream? Dreams kind of come and go. We redefine them through the course of our life. Did you have a childhood dream? I did. I dreamed as a child that I'd grow up to be a major league baseball player. I didn't make it, by the way. It's okay. Did you have a dream? Let me ask you right now, if you can think of that childhood dream. I just want you to shout it out on the count of three, all right? One, two, three. I didn't get a word of that. <laughs> you know my childhood dream. I do know that if you don't have a dream, you need a dream. A reason for living. What drives you through the course of your lifetime has to be more than just what is, but rather what you see could be. And that is the dream that is worthy of our lives. So this past week on Monday, we celebrated MLK Day. This is a man that had a dream that was worthy of his life. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced perhaps the greatest speech ever, in my opinion, might have been his I Have a Dream speech from the Washington Mall, 1963. And what made this dream so remarkable? It described, I'm convinced, the kingdom of heaven. It was not a dream of retribution, but reconciliation. He said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. It was a dream that was worth dying for. And that's exactly what Dr. King would do. Tragically, April the 4th, 1968, he would die by an assassin's bullet. And of course, we remember his life today because he lived and died for this dream that was worthy of his life. And we look at that, we think, well, that is a tragedy. But church today, I want you to hear me say something. What the world calls a tragedy, God calls a triumph. See, to God, the greatest tragedy is not the life that is given, but rather the life that is lived solely for oneself. See, that's the greatest tragedy. And today I want to give you this principle as we look at another man's life by the name of Stephen. Spirit-led leaders don't save their lives, they give their lives. That's what Dr. King did. He didn't try to hang on to his life and save his life. Rather, he willingly gave his life. He had a dream that was worthy of his life. And the reality is the greatest tragedy in the mind of God, it is never the life that is given, but rather the life lived solely for oneself. And that's how the average human being lives in this ultimate selfie society where it's all about me personally. God says, no, the greatest tragedy is when you live exclusively for you personally without living for kingdom priorities and the things that last eternally. So Stephen had a dream, and church, listen, Jesus gave us our dream. There's a reason for living. 
He said in Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We put it in our church like this. We exist to see lives changed by Jesus. He's given us the dream to take the gospel to the nations, beginning with our neighbors. And the book of Acts is the historical record of how the early Christians did just that. They took the gospel, the good news, from the neighborhood to the nations, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 7, what is happening. It's probably six months, maybe as much as a year from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember what happened on the day of Pentecost. This little church began with 120 people. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches to the masses, this great crowd, from the steps of probably the temple, and 3,000 people come to Jesus in just one day. This church explodes from 120 to 3,000. Now we're talking months and months later, and it's only only picking up momentum. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 6 that many of the Jewish priests themselves are turning to Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. And the Jewish leaders that had crucified Christ months earlier are now getting really worried, like this thing is getting out of hand. And if we don't stop it now, it's not going to be stoppable. And that's exactly what early Christianity was. It was an unstoppable force that radically altered Roman society and the first century and all of human history. And so what have they done? They arrest this man named Stephen. Now, remember the leadership principle last time, the most important leadership principles. Remember, everybody's somebody's leader. I want us all to start thinking that God has called us all to leadership. Listen, the most important leadership title you will ever carry is mommy or daddy. You get what I'm saying? Everybody's somebody's leader. We said last time, leaders multiply themselves. In the body of Christ, God's work is team's work, a teamwork. And so last time, what did we see? The 12 apostles realized it's too big for just us. We cannot possibly minister to all the needs of this growing church that now numbers in the thousands. And so they multiplied themselves, and they raised up seven other men among them and gave away ministry to them, delegated responsibility to them. One of those men was the name Stephen. Stephen was one of the original deacons of this first church. And so what has happened? The Jewish leaders have arrested Stephen, and they think they're going to make an example out of him to stop this movement known as Christianity. They have arrested him, and they do the same thing to Stephen they'd done to Jesus months and months earlier. They put uh, false witnesses against him, and they're now putting him on trial. And he knows these men now have the power of life and death over him. But instead of trying to save his life and spare his life, he is clearly willing to give his life and lay down his life. He's getting to the end of the trial. He's preaching the sermon. It's supposed to be his defense. And look at what he says to them in Acts 7.51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Wait a minute, Stephen, don't you know these men have the power of life and death? I mean, why on earth aren't you saying like, hey guys, I'm sorry, we can just agree to disagree. Hey, I promise I won't talk about Jesus anymore publicly. No, one would expect him to do that right now, but he doesn't. In fact, he stands up, he speaks up, he goes right after him. He's looking at these men that has the power of life and death. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Wow. This is a man that is beyond fear. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. 
No, he's a spirit-led man. He's a spirit-filled leader, which means he's willing to give his life rather than save his own life. Look at what else he says. He goes on. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. He's looking at these Jewish leaders that have murdered the Messiah. They crucified the Christ. He's saying, you crucified the promised one, the one we've been waiting on. You crucified the Christ. He's coming right after them. Listen, it's confrontational. Did you know the gospel is confrontational by nature? See, see, we, we, we like to kind of make it a little more palatable. Oh, God loves everybody. Yeah, that's true. But that's not the end of the gospel. God loves everybody, but everybody has sinned against him, which means none of us can merit heaven, which means we're all desperate for redemption. We need salvation. That's the rest of it. But we kind of hold back. We just stop at the happy part. See, the gospel means good news. But the idea that there's good news demands there's also bad news. We like to focus on the good news and don't tell people about the bad news. You've got Stephen here now filled with the Holy Spirit. He's giving them the bad news, and the bad news is bad. You crucified the Christ. You're accountable. You killed Jesus. Now look at what happens. He says, you killed the Christ. You murdered the Messiah and have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, it says they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Have you ever been so angry? They are cut to the heart now by his word. They are so mad. It says they gnashed at him with their teeth. I mean, it's like. I mean, that's the end. I mean, they're so angry, gnashed mm. at them. I want you to know, here's what's remarkable to me. Stephen preaches almost the very same message to these men in Acts chapter 7 as Peter did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But they did not have the same response. These men resisted the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, they didn't resist. They repented. They too were cut to the heart. But instead of hardening their heart, they humbled their heart. Look at what it says in Acts 2.37. Peter preaches almost the very same message. And it says, now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you see the different response? In Acts 7, they are, oh, they're so mad. But in Acts chapter 2, they repent. Instead of getting hardened, they're humbled. Men and brethren, we killed the Christ. Is there any hope for us? What shall we do? And 3,000 people turn to Jesus in one day. Let me ask you, how do you respond when the word of God is preached? How do you respond when you're confronted with the truth? See, the heart response has one of two options. You either humble your heart before God or you harden your heart before God. Do you understand? They were cut to the heart and that is the purpose of the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God. The word of God, Ephesians 6, 17, is like a scalpel. It's called the sword of the spirit and the spirit of God takes the scalpel, the word of God like a sword and wants to take it to your heart and lay it wide open and peel back all the layers so you no longer walk in self-distortion and self-deception so you can see what God sees, your true spiritual condition. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
That means every single time you read the word of God, you hear the word of God, the spirit of God wants to take that sword of the word of God to your heart. And what happens when we're confronted with sin, when we're confronted with the truth, we either get hardened against him or we get humbled before him. What will you do? Those are the only two options. God's trying to reveal your true spiritual condition. In Acts chapter 7, instead of getting humbled, they get hardened. Acts 7, 54. When they heard these sayings, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I want you to notice, he is full of the Holy Spirit. Why did God give the Spirit of God? It's so we could be a powerful, fearless witness of the Son of God. And one of the common denominators in the book of Acts is that when people get filled with the Holy Spirit, they get a holy boldness. They become fearless. This is the reason, first and foremost, Jesus promised his Spirit. Acts 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be a witness of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I want you to see, every time somebody gets filled with the Holy Spirit, they're fearless. They're bold. This is Stephen now. He knows that he's about to give his life. He knows he's going to be stoned to death. He knows how this is going to end. He just doesn't care. He's not trying to spare his life, hang on to his life, save his life. He is fully prepared to give his life. He's got nothing left to lose because he's already given it all away. That's the mark of one who's been filled with the Holy Spirit. I was preaching several months ago about finding your one. And one of our irresistible uh, things that we're doing in these next two years, one of our initiatives is a thousand of us looking for the one. There can be no more important thing in your life than you run the one play Jesus called you to run. Be a witness for him. Find your one. That's someone in your life, friend, family member, far from God that needs Jesus. If you're looking for your one sometime in the next two years, God's going to help your life intersect with them. So I was preaching on that a few months ago. Coming out of this service, a, a young lady asked this question. She saw me out in the hall. She said, Pastor Phil, every single time I know the Holy Spirit is telling me I need to share Jesus with a friend. And I know I need to have a gospel conversation with them. I get right to the edge. I almost do. And then I chicken out. She's being honest. I think she's being honest for a lot of us, Yes. She says, Phil, what do I do? That's what I told her to do. I said, you pray right there and ask God to fill you with his spirit. Say, Jesus, I cannot do this in the natural. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit so you can do something unnatural through me? God, fill me, control me. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You're already indwelt by the Spirit of God. As a child of God, you need to be filled with the Spirit. This is something you do repeatedly. It's not a one and done. You, you ask God, fill me with your spirit. What you're saying is, God, now empower me with your spirit. I surrender to control the Holy Spirit. And when you pray that, you just start to open up your mouth and you start to talk. And I will promise as you open up your mouth, the spirit of God will take over. And it's no longer you speaking, it's the Spirit of God now speaking through you. Hey, this is what I do every single time I get up to preach. I just knelt three times this morning right there at this altar. I'm praying right there on my knees. Guess what I was praying for? God, fill me with your Holy Spirit because I can't do this apart from you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. See, in my natural self, I would care too much about what you might think of me. 
See, in my natural self, I want you to like me at the end of the day. But in my unnatural self, my spirit-filled self, I don't care what you think of me. I prefer you like me, but if you don't, I will be just fine. See, that's where God wants us to live. Most of us live in the fear of man, the fear of people's opinion, and so we hold back just a little bit. God, I don't want to hold back anything. I want to let everything out that you've given me. I don't want to live in the fear of opinion. I don't want to live in the fear of man. All of a sudden, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you become fearless, and you're filled with a holy boldness. This is Stephen now. He's filled with an unnatural but a supernatural boldness. He's become fearless because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God gives him an image, a vision of heaven. And he sees the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is very interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament where it says Jesus is standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Every other place in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, for example, Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, most of us modern American Gentile Christians don't have any idea the implications. But in the ancient days, if you were sitting on the right hand of a man that had authority, say a king, By him sitting you on his right hand, what he was saying is we are equals. He has as much authority as me. The right hand was the seat of dominion. It was the hand of power. It was the hand of authority. So now we see Jesus seated on the right hand of the Father. It implies complete equality between the Father and the Son, complete dominion, power, and authority. But notice here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen sees him standing, not sitting, on the right hand of the throne of God. We don't know for sure why, but I think it's implied. The implication is Jesus is watching what is happening. And these same men that had crucified him months earlier, had they repented right then, humbled their heart, instead of hardening their heart, Jesus was ready to return immediately, forgive their sin, and establish his kingdom right there and then. As he's looking down today from heaven at this auditorium, he's looking at every single person's heart. He can see what nobody else can see. He's ready to forgive us of our sin. He wants to give us grace and mercy. And he would have right then, he was standing ready to return at the second coming. But they didn't repent. They hardened their heart. He turned and sat back down next to the Father where he sits today at the right hand of the Father but he's coming back someday. There is a day. But it would have been that day had they repented of their sin. Now look at what happens. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. I mean, get the picture. They are so angry. They cannot stand what they're hearing. It's like, la, 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 we're not listening. They literally stopped their ears. They hate what they're hearing so bad. They stop their ears, they run at him, this mass now, this mob of people, look at what happens. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, you're going to need that detail in just a little bit. That's a very important detail. There was a young Pharisee by the name of Saul that was presiding over this illegal execution. And they laid down their clothes at his feet. You know why? Stoning someone was a very dirty, bloody, brutal way of execution. 
They take off their clothes to keep them clean. They put them at the feet of this young Pharisee by the name of Saul, and they stone Stephen as he was calling on the name of God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. You know another mark of being filled with the spirit of God? You don't want retribution. You want grace, reconciliation. You know, he got this from Jesus. Jesus, as he hung on a cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, don't charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, sleep being a euphemism of death. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr in church history. But do you understand, millions and millions and millions upon millions would follow. And these sinful, wicked men thought that by murdering Stephen, they could stop this movement that would become known as Christianity. They thought they'd make an example out of him, and everybody else would be scared when they saw him. And what they could not have imagined, and what they just did, was pour fuel on the fire. I mean, Christianity was this little fire that was burning in this one little city in the Roman Empire. It was Jerusalem. It was a localized fire. It was a fire that was contained. But what happens if you pour gasoline on a fire that's contained? And that's exactly what happens. From Acts chapter 7, because of this persecution, they began to scatter out from not just Jerusalem, but now Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it was indeed this persecution that was the fuel of the fire of early Christianity. It was like fire that swept through dry timber. It was unstoppable. And so that by the end of the first century, indeed, these early Christians took the gospel to the ends of the earth because it was indeed the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. Tertullian, who was a pagan man, he turned to Jesus, became a Christian, about 195 AD, a very famous church historian, he's still remembered for this day, saying it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. See, Satan thought he could stop Christianity through persecution, but anywhere Christians have been made to die, Christianity thrives. Only in Western civilization, where Christians have been left alone to live, has Christianity eroded from within. I want you to see, the church in America lacks power because the church in America lacks martyrs. You remember what Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you should be a witness of me in Jerusalem, to Samir, to the ends of the earth. Now that word power is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. There's dynamite, explosive power that lives within us all. Now check it out. Be a witness. That word is martis, from which we get the word martyr. Do you see what Jesus was teaching? To the degree you live as a martyr is the degree you will live with Christ's power. And the church in America lacks power because we lack martyrs. Now I'm going to quote a, a very famous saint. His name is St. Chad. He's a, he's a preacher I've been following for a while now, okay? So uh, I heard Chad say something. As he kicked the series off Sunday, January the 1st, still holidays, a lot of people weren't here. I thought as I heard him say, this needs repeating. I mean, this really bears repeating. It's probably said the first time, seriously, by St. Somebody in the 5th century A.D., but the first time I ever heard it was St. Chad, 21st century A.D., 
Listen to this. This is good. We are not all called to die a martyr's death, but we are all called to live a martyr's life. You see the difference? God hadn't called us all where we live today to die for our faith, though even today many around the world are in fact dying for their faith. But in Western civilization, one of the pillars is religious liberty, religious freedom. Nobody's going to kill you if you're a Christian. But I would suggest right there's part of the problem. Because historically, what Satan could not do through persecution, he has succeeded in Western civilization through inner erosion and corruption and distortion and deception. You see, the reality is we're not all called to die a martyr's death, but we're all called to live a martyr's life. What is a martyr anyway? A martyr is not one whose life was taken. A martyr is one whose life is given. See, that is the difference between being murdered and martyred. Somebody who's murdered, listen, they're a victim. Their life was taken. But a martyr is not one whose life is taken. It's one whose life is given. Uh, It's Dr. King. He could have saved his life. He knew there was assassination plots upon his life. He could have gone into hiding. He could have just disappeared. He could have backed up. He could have gone under the radar. But he chose to stand up. He put himself in harm's way. He had a dream that was worthy of his life. He had a dream worth dying for, which is why he had a dream worth living for. It was Stephen. He could have backed up. He could have shut up. He could have become a closet Christian, like the average American Christian. have a private faith, but he didn't. He chose to give his life. His life was not taken. He he chose to lay down his life when he could have saved his life. See, we're not all called to die a martyr's death, but you see, we are indeed called to live a martyr's life. That means to live a life of self-sacrifice. That means to live for things that last forever, the things that really, really matter, to live sacrificially, instead of living selfishly in this ultimate selfie society. I mean, we live increasingly in the selfie society where it's all about me and it's all for me and I get to live my own little life and build my own little kingdom of dust and things that will one day rust and to live the martyr's life says, no, there's something more to this life than is. This life is not all that matters. It's not all that will be. I'm gonna live for the things of eternity no matter what it costs me. See, that's living a martyr's life. So now you know why I say the church in America lacks power because we lack martyrs. And this is exactly what Jesus called us to. What's it mean to be a Christian anyway? Mark 8 and verse 34. Look at what Jesus says. It says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me. Now think about the implications. Jesus said, you want to follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're going to have to deny yourself and die to yourself. See, the problem today is we want a Christianity without the cross. See, we want the cross on which Jesus died for us. We just don't want the cross on which we must die for him. 
And there is no true Christianity without a cross. And when we come and sing and we worship and we praise him because he indeed died on a cross for us, but we forget that he has called us to die on a cross for him. When he said to take up your cross, hey, his first century followers could not have understood remotely what we would have come to think today. We just think metaphorically about a cross. No, they understood it was literally in the first century. A cross is not something you wore, it is something you bore on your way to your own execution. It was a thing that was bloody, it was brutal, it was ugly. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to follow me on this Calvary road of suffering. It's going to cost you personally. Yet we have a Christianity that costs nothing. And a faith that costs nothing will accomplish nothing. A faith that demands nothing will do nothing. And Jesus is laying down the condition, and it has not changed today. It demands a crucifixion. He would go on. He would put it this way. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. Jesus was teaching, you've got one life. You can hang on to that life. You can try to save your life, and one day you will lose your life. On the other hand, today you can let go of your life and lose your life and find true life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because we have a Christianity without a cross, well, I have commitment to Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus is just one more commitment in an already overcommitted life. We want to live for Jesus without first having to die for Jesus. And right there's the problem. It's Christianity without a cross. So we have a faith that's more life-enhancing than life-threatening. It's more dainty than it is dangerous. It's more cozy than it is costly. You know, this is the age of Christian prosperity theology. It's what I call lollipop theology, hot tub religion, quick trip Christianity. Make it quick, make it easy. Should I keep going? And I'm trying to say we're trading the greater things for the lesser things. When you let go of your life, then Jesus says you're going to find true life. And to the degree you have died is the degree you finally become fully alive. And this is the calling of Christ upon all of our lives. And here's the reality, church. You cannot really live for Christ unless you first lay down your life for Christ. See, for some of us, the only thing consistent about our Christianity is we're consistently inconsistent. Kind of one foot in, one foot out. Start, stop. How many times have you started and then stopped? Kind of one foot in, one foot out. This is a lot of our existence. You really want to follow Jesus? Here, here's the reality. The answer is not, again, I'll say it. I think I've said it last two or three weeks. The answer is not another New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions last to about the middle of March if you've done really good. For some of us, we've already blown it. This is why the gyms were really full the first two weeks of January. They're already going back to normal. New Year's resolutions don't let, we don't need another New Year's resolution, self-reformation, I really mean it this time, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna do better. No, you won't. You can't change what you do until Jesus changes what you are. See, true transformation comes by way of a crucifixion. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation, old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, but you cannot be a new creation until you've embraced a personal crucifixion and one you do, you're going to live now in the power and the victory of the resurrection. 
That's why you can't live for Jesus until you've died for him, laid down your life for him. But you have to decide, I want Jesus more than the junk. The problem is we want to hang on to this and still got this. Yeah, I, I, I want to hang on to my sin. I mean, just a little bit of sin. It's, it's not a lot of sin. Not like I'm doing all the sins, but it's this sin. I want to hang on. I, I still want to sleep with my boyfriend. I still want to sleep with my girlfriend. We're not married. But I want Jesus, too. I want, I want my sin and my Savior. See, the problem is you can't fully live for him because you've not yet laid down your life for him. See, in the heat of temptation, what do you do? It is not suppression. It's not self-determination. Your will will eventually cave in, no matter your intentions. What you do in the heat of temptation is not suppression. It's crucifixion. I die. And as I die to that sin, now I have the power to live for him. See, that's called the crucified life. It's taught over and over in the New Testament, but it's been lost in modern American Christianity. It's a Tony Robbins Christianity. Some of you don't have a clue who I'm talking about. I can tell. Dating myself. Motivational speaker, you know, with a little Bible verse sprinkled in somewhere. No, it's not motivational speaker, power of positive thinking, Christianity, it's you die so you live. That's the message of the cross. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said these words, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. Everybody say, but Christ. All the church houses say, but Christ. That was the church houses I was talking to. That's the most important. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now listen to the implication. It's no longer I who live, and I'm embracing my co-crucifixion. Yeah, Jesus was crucified for me, but I was also then crucified with him, which means it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, all of a sudden, it's no longer Jesus just lives in you. Now he starts living through you. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is Christianity with a cross, the one on which I die, not simply the one on which he died. And only when you've died can your life be multiplied. Now I want to talk about this principle. Last week I gave you this principle, very important leadership principle. Leaders multiply themselves in others. In the same way Jesus multiplied himself in 12 men. And then in Acts chapter 6, they multiplied themselves in seven men who would then multiply themselves in other men and women. That's what leaders do. If you're a parent, what are you trying to do? Multiply your vision, your values, and the life of your children. Every kind of le- If you're not multiplying yourself, you're not leading. I want you to think about how that principle works in perfect tandem with this principle. Remember, spirit-led leaders don't save their life, they give their life. Only once you have died can your life be multiplied. This is what Jesus said on John 12, 24. He's about to die. He's just hours away from being crucified. His disciples cannot imagine, they could not fathom a Messiah that was going to the cross. 
He's trying to explain why it's imperative that he goes to the cross. He put it this way in John 12, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus was teaching, I have this life. And unless I let go of this life and die, my life will remain alone. But if it dies, if I bury it, that seed comes back to life and it multiplies. See, spirit-led leaders don't hang on to their life. They give their life, and in so doing, God multiplies their life. That's the principle Jesus was teaching about himself first and foremost, and all of his followers. Remember what he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. We have a vision of multiplication, but for that seed to be multiplied, it first must die. And I want you to think about Stephen for a moment. You remember that little clue that Luke thought was important you knew. There was a young man named Saul presiding over this execution of this man named Stephen. Stephen had a young life. He was a young man. He did not have a long life. He did not have a lengthy life. He got the chance to preach one sermon in his entire life, and there is no record of any converts as he preached that one sermon. But there was one man that was there who saw what Stephen did and heard what Stephen said. And in Acts chapter 9, we're going to study the conversion of this young Pharisee named Saul. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He will become the great apostle Paul that God will use to inspire half of the New Testament, arguably the greatest Christian missionary in all of church history. And you know what's going to happen? Acts chapter 9, Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. What he was saying is, Saul, you know that I've been pricking your heart for a long, long time. I've been taking the word of God with the spirit of God, and I've been pricking your heart. It's hard for you to keep kicking against the pricks. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I think there's a reason Luke includes that little snippet, that little detail in the execution of this man named Stephen, because I'm convinced the pricks that he was kicking against is what he saw. When he saw Stephen lay down his life, it's what he heard when when Stephen preached this great gospel sermon, Saul being a Pharisee, he was a theologian, and he knew what Stephen was saying was true. He is the promised one. Jesus is the promised one. He is the anointed one. And he could not outrun the truth because he was there. When Stephen chose to die, when he could have saved his life, which means to me there's a family tree. The Apostle Paul impacted millions and millions and millions of people, but that family tree can be traced back to one man by the name of Stephen that planted his seed and has been multiplied innumerable numbers of times. See, it all began with Jesus. He planted that seed. What is seed? Seed gives life. What Jesus was teaching is that seed, when it dies, is multiplies. He's using this agricultural illustration. His followers would have understood it perfectly in an agricultural economy. From one little seed of grain, you get thousands and thousands of seeds of grain. It multiplies. See, if you want God to multiply your life, it begins with not hanging on to your life, but rather letting go of your life and dying to live the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should aspire to have a family tree spiritually, not just physically. And that family tree begins with the seed of Genesis 3.15, the Lord Jesus personally. 
Look what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You see, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. It's not coincidental, it is providential. Jesus was crucified on the feast of Passover, the ancient Jewish feast of Passover. Three days later, the Jews would celebrate the feast of first fruits. He's resurrected, not coincidentally, providentially, on the feast of first fruits. And Paul would say, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. But check it out, he's not the only fruit, he's not the last fruit, he was the first fruits of which the fruits of the resurrection has been multiplied millions and millions and millions of times of which my life is one of the fruits of the resurrection. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the day is coming. I'm going to die, but that is not the end. That is only the beginning. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He that believes in him, though he may die, yet shall he live. That seed has been multiplied over and over again. And what was true of Jesus? He let go of his life. No one took his life was true of Stephen. Just like Dr. King, nobody took his life. He laid down his life so that his life has been multiplied. Stephen laid down his life and his life was then multiplied. What is Jesus looking for? Others like him, others like them. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Do you want fruit that's gonna be multiplied? Not just temporarily, but eternally forever and ever and ever. Jesus is getting to the end of the sermon, this little object lesson right before he dies to an audience of 12. He says these words, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Notice there's fruit that doesn't remain. You can pursue the things of this world and you can have lots and lots of fruit on your life Personally, temporarily, fruit, accomplishments, achievements, power, pleasure, prestige, popularity, prosperity. But it's fruit that will one day decay. Everything in this world will one day rust and go away. Fruit that doesn't remain. On the other hand, there's fruit you can give your life to that will remain eternally. What is that? It's what we say at Abundant Life. Our mission is to see lives changed by Jesus. And when you give your life to see lives changed by Jesus, he's going to give you fruit that remains. I'm talking about the redemption of the souls of men and women. But to have that kind of fruit demands you take your seed, your life, you bury it, you put it in the ground, you die. And when that seed comes back to life, it multiplies. You have a family tree physically, you should desire a family tree spiritually. We have a family tree at Abundant Life as a church body, as a church family. I get nostalgic this time of year. I really, really do. I'll tell you why. Because it was this time of year that God was doing something in me where Phil died. I died to the life I thought I would live. In February of 2000, I went to bid a cop. I got resurrected as a preacher. I did. I buried that seed. I let go of what was to receive what might be, what could be. I'll never forget this little group of people in a little broken down brick building that called a police officer to be their pastor when it didn't make sense. Underqualified, untrained, completely unready. And there was a little group of people that put their seed with my seed 
It was buried. But that little bit of seed has been multiplied over and over again in the last 23 years. We were once this little tree. This is your life if you're a new Christian. You don't have a lot of fruit. You're just a sapling. You're just, just a young tree. But God wants you to grow. And as you grow spiritually, you start reaching maturity. And one of the marks of maturity is you start bearing fruit eternally, spiritually. Our church grew. All of a sudden, we weren't just that little bitty tree. We were a bigger tree with a little bit of fruit. Our church kept growing. It was healthier. It was getting stronger so that we became a great big tree with lots and lots of, lots of fruit. But listen carefully. This is not the end. This is not the win. See, that's addition. But God wants multiplication. So the win is not a single tree with lots and lots of fruit. The win is from a single seed, a great big orchard full of lots and lots of trees that's multiplying fruit. It's not addition, but multiplication. And this is what happens. It is the law of the harvest. When you let God have your life and you die, it is multiplied over and over and over again. And I want you to see and celebrate with me the last 23 years of what God has done through you and your sacrificial generosity and sacrificial living as you planted your seed over and over again.
To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Praise be to our marvelous God. The old saying says you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you cannot count the number of apples in a single seed. Not a single tree with lots of fruit, but an orchard with lots of trees. So that's the vision of the Great Commission. That is why Christianity moves so quickly. It was not addition. God wants to multiply your life. But to multiply your life, you have to die to what is. To live for what could be. To live for the things of eternity. Churches, your pastor, I just want to say thank you. I know you do it for Jesus. It's not for me. But I want to say thank you because nothing would have happened in the last 23 years without so many people giving so much and dying to what is. Dying to give away their time. Hey, last week I preached a message, get out of the bleachers, get out of the stands, find your position. Like a gazillion people signed up to serve last week. I wanna say thank you, thank you. That's awesome. People getting out of the stands, raise their hand, I'm gonna find a position, I wanna get in the action, and what it takes, I'm gonna die just a little. I'm gonna die for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning to invest the word of God in the souls of men and those children in the next generation. I'm gonna die on a Sunday morning, take an hour and a half where I could do something different. And I wanna make sure anyone that comes to Abundant Life knows that they are loved, that they are cared about, they're valued, you're not just a number. That's what you're doing, you gotta die a little. We're all called, not necessarily to die a martyr's death, but to live a martyr's life to sacrifice what we have for the things that really matter, that last forever. I just want to say thank you because God's work is teamwork. And the generosity you've given sacrificially to make dreams a reality. March of 2021, we wanted to go to the crossroads. We had a 1940s warehouse and it's been renovated into a church house and we're about to launch Abundant Life Crossroads. Guess why? Sunday, March 2021, we had a goal, $2 million in one day to do this. We're not going to the bank. We're not gonna borrow money, $2,000. Guess what? You gave generously, you died. Instead of buying a new car, you put it off a little longer so you could give to this. And instead, of, instead of putting more in your 401k, which is important, you chose this instead. That's why it happened. I'm trying to say thank you. Thank you for planting that seed. Now we're gonna run that play again, we're not done. There's an 1890s firehouse right next to that 1940s warehouse. Guess what, we're gonna renovate it into Sunday school space for that campus and it's gonna be an Abundant Life Counseling Center to bring hope to the heart of our city. We're gonna try to run that play again March this year. I'm praying for another $2 million giving day. Would you pray? That's all I'm asking you to do. Just pray about maybe giving on that day your very best sacrificial offering. And I will promise you, I will promise you, God's going to use it to multiply it for generations to come. Thousands and thousands of lives changed by Jesus. It is a dream worthy of our lives, isn't it? It's a dream we're dying for. And I've said before, if you don't have a dream, if you don't have a cause, we're dying for. You don't have a dream. You don't have a cause worth living for. It's worthy of our lives. 
And today, wherever you are in the world, whatever church house in our country, hundreds of miles away, maybe another campus right here in the city, I'm gonna ask you to take a stand. This cause is worthy of our life, but the cause, the cause of Christ comes with a cost. The cost is high. The cost is a cross. To take up your cross. To live a life of sacrifice. And if today you're ready and you're really willing to take this seriously, I'm gonna ask you to stand right now. If you're willing, as Jesus said, to take up your cross and bear the cost, I'm gonna ask you to stand right now to your feet. Wherever you are in the world, just stand. Church houses, other campuses, with us right here in Lee Summit. Now, if you're not ready, it's okay. You may still just be that little tree. You're just not ready to take this type of a cost and bear the cross. It's okay, no pressure. But if you're serious and you're willing to bear the cross and live a martyr's life, then I'm gonna ask you to say this with me on the count of three. I want the cross. Say, and let's put the devil on notice. Let's put hell on notice, we're coming. Heaven's on the way, all right? One, two, three. All right, now let, let's say it, let's say it so the devil hears us say it, all right? I'm serious about this. One, two, three. There we go, we're on the way. Listen, this is what the early Christians did. They bore the cross. And if God could do with 120 people, what do you think he could do through me and you? I mean, if God took 120 people and changed the world, what do you think is possible? What could God do to change our city, our communities, our countries? What's possible with me and you? Heaven only knows if we're willing to bear the cross. You cannot stop a people that's willing to pay any price. Church, I love you so much. Jesus, I thank you for the saints of God at Abundant Life that have given so much over and over again that has taken up this cross to follow him. I pray that today we would die, that you would multiply our life, the life of Christ, over and over again in a generation, a nation that is desperate to know you. Lord Jesus, it's an honor to take up the cross for the one who took up his cross on our behalf. In Jesus' name. Amen. Give him the glory with me today. Would you praise him? Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.